everybody, and welcome to History is a Weapon 13. I, of course, am Sean KB. I'm here, of course, with Matt Chrisman. What's up, man? Doing good. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. I can't believe we made it to 13 of these. It's been about three and a half years, and uh, who boy, uh, have we had a wild fucking ride. Yeah, indeed. Things keep happening. They refuse to stop. They keep happening more and more. Indeed. Many, many such cases. Um, yeah, when we started this whole shebang all those years back, you and me kind of in an ad hoc way, but I think in a, in a pretty uh, convincing way, kind of came up with a thesis, right? Mm-hmm. And the thesis was essentially that uh, in 2017, we had been living as Americans, as people on the center of the empire. Uh, we had been living um, in a particular epoch of not just world history, but capitalist history, an epoch that began with the crisis of the 1970s and um, really solidified into the 1980s. And by the time many of us were growing up, you know, in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, seemed to solidify into you know what some people have called capitalist realism or certainly a sort of dull, never ending present. Uh, in terms of politics, in terms of uh, the economy, in terms of ideology. And of course, that was punctured very much in uh, 2007, 2008. So our project has been kind of trying to understand how we got to this particular point and um, really to try to hone in on the various different strains that brought us into that period with an eye towards, I think, an understanding on both of our parts that's, that that was ending, right? That there mm-hmm. was something was ending and a new thing was beginning. It may That maybe felt a little abstract uh, three and a half years ago, but who boy does it feel really concrete right now? Oh, uh, yeah. The, uh, certainly since, I mean, the election of Trump was one thing, uh, but certainly since uh, BLM and then now um, with a massive economic turmoil, that the world is facing with the seeming splitting up of the capitalist world into competing blocks, you know, this sort of disglobalization or end of the sort of free market uh, imperial sort of uh, uni culture, I guess you could say, or, or Mm -hmm. uni economy that's existed for so long. And of course, too, what we're going to talk about today is uh, a war in Europe, an actual shooting war in Europe. We got one folks. It's been a while, but we got one. Yeah, what do you think? Who who'd have thunk it, huh? I mean, I guess we had the uh, the Yugoslav stuff, right? Yeah, that. But that at the time that felt like cleaning up. You know, it's like uh, it was the New World Order asserting uh, the prerogative of the Atlantic Alliance and saying, okay, uh, you know, things are uh, to all those loser countries who lost the Cold War. Uh, you know, condolences, but we're we are. A firm uh, officially establishing sort of a a code of conduct and uh, our own supremacy as the arbitrators have said, uh, and so it had that sort of triumphalist feel to it. You know, even though it was war in Europe, it felt like sort of I'm sure from the perspective of uh, of of people at the imperial center, the last war in Europe. Uh, and this though feels very much like uh, the resumption of uh, of the old uh, European power politics that we thought we had banished yeah for sure i mean the um the the the, in 1999 or so when the balkan wars popped off 
uh, we are still in the end of history, right? History had very much ended uh, at that point in time. And the rules-based international order uh, was such that um, a guy like Vladimir Putin, the hand-picked successor to uh, Yeltsin, who had been our little puppet up there on the uh, mm-hmm. in charge of the Russian Federation, somebody like Vladimir Putin, it was possible, was going to be brought into the rules-based international order or was at least going to be a junior partner within that. Right. Um, so now, of course, very, very different situation. And one that I think that you and I... I wouldn't say predicted because it was pretty obvious that, you know, in our last episode, when we talked about Afghanistan, we were both saying about how this is going to allow various different actors geopolitically around the world to start uh, strutting their stuff on the world stage. Um, didn't realize it was going to be this uh, big, this uh, quick and this bloody. Yeah. Yeah, no, uh, the timeline, I think that's the big uh, f- uh recurring element of, of the phenomenon of, of history's continuation, you know, even though like, we are un- incapable of, of actually responding to the re- reemergence of historical forces, uh, is that things are happening on a timeline that uh, seemed seems inconceivable until the next domino falls. Like, I feel like everything that everything from Trump on has been, uh, a a tra- trajectory that can be uh, pretty accurately uh, predicted, but uh, that I think assumes that it'll uh, at every level that things uh, are not going to take are not going to happen this quickly. That you know, okay, we're out of Afghanistan in the summer of twenty twenty one. Russia isn't going to try to reassert itself in Europe like literally within six months. In a, in, a, in, a, in a massive display of organized violence, too, yeah. not merely trying to do Crimea part two, you know, right. grabbing onto the Donbass region, uh, but instead going for Kiev. Um, and I, I think the, the shocking thing, too, and, and this gets to the um, <laughs> the multipolarity, which is a bit of a touchword these days. But the new sort of multipolar world that's popping is that. You know, I don't know. I haven't I haven't been uh, caught up on your work. I'm not sure what, how you guys have taken this. But, you know, I admitted when I recorded with uh, C. Derek Varn that the uh, the scope of the invasion took me by surprise. I mean, oh, I- me totally as well. Yeah, I, I was I was stunned that they would go go for it like that. Uh, but the more I think about it, the more uh, I realize that the uh, that the that what we think of when we uh when we evaluate uh other regimes and our own uh, through uh, a framework of rational interest rational self-interest that that through the looking glass rationality might look very differently like i don't i think you still have to assume that any regime or leader of a regime is operating out of some self-conscious understanding of an interest that is shared that is an overlapping interest of themselves uh, the the specific like political mechanism that they're part of and then the greater you know uh, uh, political economy that it represents uh, but what looks like rationality on one side of uh, you know the the imperial gaze I think looks differently for countries that are looking at the same crisis the same, uh, ever increasing crisis as us, but without a reserve currency, you know, without with, without a lot of the uh, things that we uh, carry around uh, and that kind of 
protect us from the worst res- uh, effects of of you know shocks hitting the system. Uh, so that when we look at Putin and we say it's irrational for him to invade Ukraine, and you know, uh, in, it is dangerous, and it certainly has apparently backfired tremendously. Uh, but from from Moscow, as opposed to from DC, I can and forget about every other global capital. Uh, uh, I think there's an increasing understanding that the rational choice, i.e., the thing that keeps you in uh, good stead with the greater powers than yourself, uh, is an eventual recipe for a total subordination and annihilation. Like, even if you're personally going to make out, you will make out as a bought-out, like, former uh, ruler who is now a, a purely, uh, has had your ability to assert, like, actual power uh, totally neutered. Uh, as And that goes for your political clique, and that goes for your, your national uh, project. Uh, and if that's the case, then that is no longer, uh, if you value your independent sovereignty, like psychologically and materially, that's no longer a rational choice then. The rational choice is to do something, to actually try to do something, something that might not work, but something that could change the game conditions so that you are no longer on a guaranteed locked glide path towards total subordination yeah i mean look at where russia was before this right i mean we're not gonna we're not gonna play the uh the dual sort of bipolar um propaganda game i think between you know russia's right or russia's wrong putin versus Zelensky, whatever that's not interesting to me in fact that's kind of all you're getting right now is a sort of psychodrama who's a good guy who should you be rooting for Right, exactly. Uh, which is it's there's the, the the perversity of that. I'm sure you guys have covered. We've talked about it yeah. too. Well, I mean, it's when it, it's all a spectacle. Like that's at the end of the day, what you're really seeking is is a is a narrative and and something that is aesthetically pleasing to observe. You know, and and what's funny is is that a lot of people who consider themselves to have fully broken away from b- the bourgeois politics of the United States still find themselves at the end of the day uh, hostage to that same urge and end up uh, applying the same libidinal lens to everything. Like there's a war on who should, whose tank should I be rooting for? Because I'm just, I'm going to be watching it with everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. The interesting and shocking thing. And because there's been escalation on both sides and I should say too, that, um, what we're going to do on this episode is we're, we're going to talk about the war a little bit. We're going to talk about the current diminution of uh, American power uh, and the current moment. But we're also going to try to situate this, I think, in history, of course, because that's kind of what we try to do here. Try to understand the sort of um, try, try to get a grip on the 20th century, right? Because you can't right. talk about Ukraine and Russia without you know pointing out that both of them were – 30, 35 years ago, um, Soviet republics, right? Mm -hmm. Um, With obviously one in the driver's seat and one is subordinate, right? But we're going to talk a a little bit about the legacy of the 20th century, about uh, actually existing socialism um, and talk about, you know, what can maybe be taken from that history and what perhaps should be left behind Mm -hmm. because you've seen a lot of the, the cheerleading um, uh, from some people on the left uh, for Vladimir Putin 
as this sort of anti-imperialist force. Uh, you've, you've seen a lot of that. And ultimately, it's, it's kind of a pale reflection of a politics that kind of died, I think, a while ago. And while we're in, uh, as we've been arguing, a new epoch, you know, that new epoch probably deserves to have some novelty in terms of political thought and our understanding of the world. So with all that said, I was going to say, you know, we've, we've had uh, a two-sided escalation, too, because shockingly, you know, Vladimir Putin builds up, I should say the Russian state, because it's not just Putin, right? I think yeah. that's a dumb analysis. But um, the Russian ruling class, let's say, and Putin built up a, uh, an entire reserve of uh, $680 billion. And to kind of punctuate uh, the split, to punctuate the beginning of something like a multipolar world, of course, the United States seizes about $300 billion of that, uh, really underlining, I think, that um, the idea of um, a sort of like unipolar world uh, of, of markets that are free of um, a rules-based international order that not only relies on American military power, of course, but also the sort of hegemonic power of the American dollar, uh, the American uh, reserve system, uh, and of course the American economy. We, we're now facing potentially a, a great crack up in that. We probably are at this yeah. point in time, which is Absolutely. in, so again, that that escalation came from both sides, which, which is tied to, I think what you were saying before is a sort of increasing desperation on the part of, of all of the ruling classes uh, in order to try to protect what they can and, and, and gain what they can in an era of extreme turbulence in an era where uh, a lot seems to be up for grabs. Yeah. I mean, there's this centripetal pop, a force pop pulling uh, the countries of the world system apart uh, because, you know, the uh, capitalism, the global capitalist system was built from uh, Washington. Like, the, it, it required a nervous system. It required, it required a brainstem in order to assert, you know, uh, a control over all of the emergent uh, polities of the post-war world. But, you know, as as resources deplete, as the rate of profit climbs, uh, the, the instabilities and inefficiencies that are part and parcel with that, that kind of cockpitted capitalism, when capitalism destroys all uh, boundaries and destroys all, all uh, tempo temporarily, uh, <clears throat> all uh, geographically fixed power and, and value, and creates, uh, inevitably, pulls towards a totally decentralized uh, uh, system, um, uh, that that <clears throat> force is now just running smack into the reality that uh, that Washington was never dethroned, uh, and that what they've been that the, the uh, all of the energy that has Washington has been asserting in the global stage since the fall of the Soviet Union has to has been to basically banish that uh that uh drive that that sort of magnetic pull away uh uh from unipolarity to multipolarity and you know the war on terror the the, the massive military uh uh outlays of the last 20 years that these are all uh attempts to uh, maintain american primacy even if american primacy uh, fac uh facilitates the creation of a unstable and increasingly unstable global economic order 
that is now buckling under the weight of uh, multiplying contradictions. Uh, and you could honestly argue that like forces like the Chinese and and uh, and the Russians, you know, while they are challenging empire, while they are challenging the specific Amer- Anglo uh, order that that helped give birth to global capitalism, they're really kind of doing it on behalf of capitalism itself, like the final form of a capitalism that is able to operate by actually uh, flowing within a, 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 a totalized market space and not having to put up with the uh, inefficiencies and uh, redundancies of running everything through the United States. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, you, you've seen like um, the, the United States now, or at least the dollar system, uh, and you see this with the reaction from Europe and the fact that Western Europe and Central Europe pulls right back into the NATO, EU, US, Western orbit or whatever, that uh, this is, in a, in a sense, right, there, there's obviously this attack against the Russians, but there's this attempt almost, there's this sort of like soft hegemony um, with, with hard power behind it that's, that's kind of forcing these Western European nations into like a, a prison house of nations under the United States, which is to right. say like the political calculus of this, the geopolitical calculus of this uh, ended up in a situation where Europeans are going to be paying a lot more for gas. Right. Where they're going to be playing a lot more for food. We're seeing a return to something like if we take it from like a Brennerite sort of analysis, extra economic sort of coercion. Right. Mm -hmm. Before there was like the dull hand of of the American uh, dollar hegemony. And now it seems like geopolitics is is like uh, reasserting itself. And all of a sudden now uh, the, the Europeans are asked to take a true economic hit. You know, on behalf of upholding this rules-based international order, i.e., empire. Right, and and that is is running smack jab into the reality that the only force capable of asserting that extra economic control uh, is the state. You know, like which obviously is uh, supposed. That's that's one of the primary contradictions of this this global capitalist order is that it requires the state. Uh, to you know, create the the actual mechanical structures by which it reproduces and and, and you know moves capital throughout the world, uh, while undermining it completely, uh, and at a certain point of crisis, uh, the state will, and whoever is manning it, will discover that there is a breach in their in interest between global capital as as they understand it and their own like more much more vital and closely held interests and when that happens i mean that is the global like nationalist uh reaction is 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 this this realization sort of uh moving throughout the uh, political class uh of of the rest of the world if you track um the sort of political fractures and it's important to to kind of reground this, I think, in class politics. If you kind of ground all this uh, in the sort of populist politics that we've seen over the last, God, six years or whatever at this point in time, um, what you see is a sort of like um, a bifurcated politics. You have on the one hand um, 
working people and uh, and bourgeois parties that are oriented towards international trade, that are oriented towards globalized industry, that are oriented towards finance or tech, like these extremely, extremely liquid industries, right? The, like they, they, you could not flow faster than fucking, you know, digital yeah. uh, ones and ones and zeros. It right? goes faster, literally. It reverses causality. They're making trades before they happen now. Right. They've got algorithms. It's, it's the fucking algorithm, right? Yeah. So you have on the one hand this sort of international finance tech sort of capital and the politics that follow from that on the one hand. But then you have counterposed to that, of course, another type of, of course, capitalist politics, which is the politics of local gentry of extractive industries, of national, um, you know, manufacturing industries, yeah. of like, of sort of local, small, uh, national, nationally yeah. oriented capital on the other hand. And so the politics that have been created in this moment, I think Putin's part of that too. Right? Absolutely. I mean, it's not a, it's not a coincidence that he represents one of the chief uh, fucking petroleum exporting nations. Like uh, the, one of uh, a country whose entire uh, economic uh, uh, base is, is completely overwhelmed uh, and, and is dwarfed, all other sectors dwarfed by, by, by fossil fuels, by extraction. And, 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 as, and you know, they're, they're seeing what all of the uh, regimes of fixed geographically bound power, and you can't get more geographically bound power than the stuff under the ground that is on your side of a border you literally can't move that shit unless you move the border. You might be able to drink the milkshake, <laughs> I mean, but you can't drink it from that right. bar. Like the only the only thing you can do there is move the border, which you know we've seen uh, extraction regimes once oh, time and again have to try to resort to, but you know have been until now largely cowed by the United States, and now because American power is declining, they can make a go for it, a, a risky but in their minds rational and necessary attempt to just see, hey. We have all these goddamn missiles. We have all these fucking guns. We've been spending all this time and money building this fucking machine that could theoretically, uh, like, assert real power through, you know, the old politics by other means rather than dicking around uh, at the G8 or whatever the fuck. Let's see if any of these buttons press that we press are connected to anything. And I honestly do think that you're going to see throughout the world countries do irrational things. Uh, that boil down to them just deciding to find out if they ever actually were in charge of anything, which, of course, is what you're going to do before you let the ship fucking crash into the goddamn iceberg. <laughs> See if and so any. and so like you could you could mark the, uh, you know, the whole Trump phenomenon as as this uh, emergence of a self-conscious like uh, extraction oriented politics in America, try, even the, even from within the, 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 the fucking metropole, even from within. The, the place that benefits from this more than any other country, but still benefits it through a lens of politics that forms real identity to people and truly constitutes their self-interest. Like there is no there is no economic self-interest that can be detached from one's identity, because that's what tells you what you want. And this is the and this is the power, of course, of uh, with identity politics of identity right. politics, which Putin can play with the best of them. I mean, yeah, especially what he's, if he's saying. He's saying the same thing that our right wing is saying, the same thing the European right wing is saying, because there is an understanding that there is there is the capital flow, and then there is the, the people who are stuck in the places uh, where uh, you know uh, money is based around what is there, and increasingly, even in the richest country on earth, 
those parts of the country are becoming fucking decimated. And the people left who might still have what money there is to be had there are still not experiencing life at the top of an economic order. They're experiencing, like, their day-to-day experience is of precarity and down and, uh, and a downward trend, which they, as people who believe they have political subjectivity, who have spent their entire lives convinced that they are in charge to a certain degree, or they can be in charge, are going to try to fucking act like it. And Putin is doing that just on, on the global scale. And, and the, 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 what's... And this is where I think the Fukuyama uh, is vindicated, is that we have this phenomenon of these nationalist uh, uh, political forces aligned, you know, along identity and material interest, trying to resist the the pull away of multipolarity away from any political regime of power towards private power, away from any fixed geographic, nationally contained. Uh, uh, concentration of humans into whoever is basically able to move to where the money is, uh, wherever that may be, London, New York, uh, uh, Hong Kong, wherever the fuck. Uh, you have one side there that actually has uh, access to political agency, you know, because uh, they these national uh, political regimes uh, are filled with people who think this way. And, and in countries that are either, in one degree or another, democratic, quote-unquote, the people who actually, whose count, votes actually count the most, who vote most uh, in a most coherent way, uh, have similar beliefs. That, that pull, the, the power of capital, of international capital, is pulling uh, magnetically, really, but not politically, because... The, the people left to defend uh, global capital have no basis. They have no control of anything. They have no political constituency. That The only political constituency they have are cultural liberals. Yes. The, the political constituency you see are the motherfuckers on Twitter and Facebook calling for a no-fly zone. Right. You know, or the guys or the people posting Zelensky memes or whatever. There's this, like, there's this vital center you know, that as we know, as we've been seeing is like slowly and slowly collapsing, which is why, you know, they, they don't the, the, the politics they see is, is ultimately a politics of this international capital right. and what they see in this instance. And I think, you know, a lot let's, let's give people credit. A lot of people are rightfully disgusted by the absolute use of violence and bombing and artillery on people and they want to fight. But this is being billed as a sort of defense of the liberal international order that so many, you know, a, a, a loud and vocal minority of people um, see as, you know, the last bulwark against barbarism. But another whole, you know, half of humanity or more uh, sees as austerity, sees yeah. as declining wages, sees their factory shut down. Exactly. And yes, their ways of life undermined. And you can say, oh, th- those ways of life are bad, but it's like, well, not to them. And more, and the thing that reproduces that value is lived experience in day-to-day life in these, ge- these places that still exist and have people in them. But this is where uh, Fuki- I, Fukuyama comes in for me. You have this political conflict between an actual political movement that has the capability to hold and assert stake power and then you have global capital represented by this uh, cosmopolitan politics that 
adheres to the left-wing party uh, in every, you know, uh, advanced democracy. But there which was has no, in that left wing, by the way. Yeah, but has no actual base of power. It has voters, but those voters, they can't do anything but vote. Maybe they can protest, but that's it. They can go hold a sign or they can uh, vote. Uh, the Nationalist Project, the people within that can pull trigger fingers uh, together, which is, that's, that is power at the end of the day, and they have it. But they're still being subordinated because they can't assert their political power through the gauze of our, you know, political spectacle. Uh, and Fukuyama said that history had ended, and people made fun of him because they thought what that meant is that things would stop happening. But things are still happening. Uh, what we have lost since the fall of the Soviet Union is any uh, self-conscious working class pro power project that could attempt to interdict within those uh, those events and steer history, actually try to steer it, as opposed to allow capitalism to pull us apart as we mindlessly destroy each other uh, through this prism of, of capitalist politics in, because we don't know any better. We have no other place to put our, uh, to, to, to give our axe or to, no flag to rally to. And so, like, uh, Fukuyama's, if Fukuyama was wrong, it's because his faith in capitalism made him think that that process, that interrupted history where there, there would be no more working class to contend for power, would figure itself out, would work its way towards the thing that communism was seeking. Uh, but what we know is that, uh-uh, in a finite goddamn system where the line goes down, all you will get is uh, more and more stuff happening until nothing is happening anymore, uh, absent history in the form of the working class, which has been off of the world stage since 1991. Thank you, thank you, thank you. What an excellent segue, almost like you're a professional. <laughs> uh, so, so I'm like, I'm thinking of the guy with like, a, like the glasses being like, oh, if only Fukuyama had a critique of political economy. Uh, <laughs> Going back to 1991, yeah, like the roots of this current conflict are in 1991. Uh, the roots of the triumphalism of the quote-unquote uh, rules-based international order, or call it neoliberalism, call it globalization, are all in 1991. Uh, there was, you know, a true other pole, because as much as we could talk about multipolarity now, which is to say like competing capitalist blocks uh, of, of power – economic and political there there did appear to be like a, a, a true other pole in this there was a mm -hmm. um coherent let's say an internally consistent uh working class politics and political power that existed in the world uh both russia and ukraine were part of that let's get into uh actually existing socialism i think there's a great irony in all this that uh Ukraine, of course, as Vladimir Putin so eloquently pointed out, was a uh, the creation of modern Ukraine was a modernizing project, was a national creation product of the Bolsheviks, of Lenin, um, of uh, the nationalities policy of the USSR. And famously, of course, a month ago, Putin said, oh, if you want decommunization, Right. Tearing down all those Lenin statues will give you true decommunization, which is the obliteration of Ukraine as a uh, as an independent 
He, I mean, uh, I mean, it's it's as Marge Simpson said, he's he's it's true, but you shouldn't say it. Right. So so a question. So 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 going back, right? Um, actually existing socialism. I don't. If it, when people talk about this online, or people talk about this in their little sex and smoky basement somewhere, or they talk about it at the KGB bar or wherever the fuck people hang out these days. You know, it's often um, the history from 1917 to 1991 is seen as a series of uh, betrayals uh, of the working class. Uh, it's seen as potentially the fall of a bad leadership, uh, the un, um, the, the the promise, the, the promise of proletarian democracy uh, unfulfilled. Uh, because of some particular historical contingency or some agent out there that actually subverts uh, the will of the proletariat. But um, I, I, I tend to I think that there, there are real contingencies in the situation from 1970 to 1991. But I also feel like looking back on it, there were some real serious overdetermined structures um, that existed uh, in the class movement in history at that time that made it so that the Soviet Union was the was almost from the beginning an abortive attempt at uh, at realizing something that, um, you know, ba based on theory, based on political program uh, was not meant to, let's say, take the particular form that it did. Um, yeah, you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So I think one thing that cannot be forgotten and has to be stressed in any uh, analysis and, and uh, attempt to understand the uh, October Revolution, the Bolshevik takeover of power, is that everyone involved at the top levels, and this was an incredibly top-heavy operation, uh, I'm sorry, uh, a, a incredibly, uh, th this was a, a elite program. <laughs> this was carried out by a handful of people uh, and you want to talk contingency? If the if the sealed train to Berlin hits a hits a, a landmine or get, takes a, a artillery shell on the way to Finland Station, I don't know if you have a Bolshevik revolution. Uh, that's how that's how uh, much this thing was uh, the decision of a very small group of people who were able to exploit the the complete collapse of authority and, and uh, power within the the Russian Empire to uh, grab for power when basically nobody else uh, in the political class was willing to because the uh, middle class had just simply failed to develop sufficiently in Russia uh, to claim the power that the, the economists and the Mensheviks uh, assumed that historically was, uh, was theirs to claim. Uh, and, and, and in that absence, they made the move. And in the narrow sense of saving the... Bolshevik party and their literal lives, they made the correct decision. Uh, I don't think that uh, there's anyone who would uh, argue that the Kerensky regime was long for this world or that the uh, constituent assembly would have been allowed to have been carried out by the military before someone on the right decided that enough fucking around uh, was enough and had seized power. Now, civil war is probably inevitable at that point, but uh, the simple fact is that the, the uh, bourgeois organs of power uh, within the Soviet Union had not had time. They were underbaked. So capitalism showed up on Russia's doorstep in the 19th century uh, like a time traveler. Like they had, they just showed up, the 19th century showed up in the 16th 
uh, and and they were asked to do uh, the political development uh, before the crisis, the large, the the accumulating crisis of uh, the World War One, uh, that the countries of Western Europe uh, had carried out decades before, uh, and so they made the right call to save their own skin to save the Bolshevik project, but they were doing it not so that they could save their own asses, or at least not only to save their own asses. They were doing it because they believed wholeheartedly, thanks to Trotsky uh, and then uh, the, Lenin's adoption of the principle of permanent revolution, that uh, they were going to be kicking off a worldwide communist revolution that would spread throughout Europe and that would um, essentially solve all of the problems that the idea of the tiny-ass Bolshevik party seizing a overwhelmingly peasant country in the teeth of uh, capitalist uh, hyper-hostility would have to deal with. Like all those horrifying questions, the questions that really put you to the, to, to the point of wondering, like, what are we even doing here? Uh, the things that, you know, determine the course of the Soviet Union and in a way that I don't think any of the founders of it would have preferred, except maybe Stalin, uh, because they were gonna, the Germans were gonna have a revolution, the French were gonna have a revolution, the English were gonna have a revolution, America would have a revolution, and yes, there'd be death and there'd be mass despoilation and there would be uh, requisition of grain and there would be the wrenching of the peasantry from their uh, from their land, of course, but it would be in the process of carrying out this final confrontation with capital that would end with. Uh, the first uh, buds of a uh, socialism that would bring the rest of the of the peasantry, for example, who hadn't yet been uprooted by the war, into uh, um, um, modernity without the bayonet at the end of it. You know, uh, would allow people to feel that they were contributing to a program, to 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 a to a project of human emancipation, because. They would see the benefits of it in their lives. They would see what they what communism meant in their lives because the uh, resources of advanced Europe would be distributed to the more uh, underdeveloped regions. Russia, chief amongst them, and the and the fully organized working classes of Germany and France, you know, with their own organs, not just in the trade unions, but with powerful. Uh, centralized parties would, of course, uh, be prepared to do the political work necessary uh, in order to make a, uh, a revolution in a petty capitalist backwater uh, into an international one, into ultimately a global one, right? Right. Because exactly. it's up in, up through the late 1920s, of course, there was no, there was nobody dreamed that you could simply make the the revolution in Russia itself. No. You know. No, no. It was, uh, and so it was, it was a real gamble. Yeah, it was a gamble, but it was one where they had, they had a belief, and it was a, it was certainly self interested, but it was not without justification that the conditions existed for a world revolution. Uh, and for a while there, after they took power, uh, uh, they'd been fighting the, the whites for a while. In nineteen eighteen, like when the Kiel mutiny happens in Germany, uh, they had every reason to believe that they had been correct, that every move they'd been had been the right one and that they were on the doorstep of the beginning of a world revolution that would see the end of capitalism. Everything changes. Like, like the 20th century is still a bloodbath. It's still a charnel house. It is still hundreds of millions dead. Uh, it, it, you, can't, you cannot get rid of that. 
I mean, any more than you could have gotten rid of a third of the world population dying uh, in the 17th century because the existing structures of power could not accommodate the little ice age. You know, there's no, there's no if that if they could have gotten out of that, no matter how uh, discrete uh, events change. But at the other end of that conflagration, instead of having a capitalist world order that is now uh, collapsing in in real time under the weight of its contradictions, you might have a uh, a a rudimentary uh, global communism uh, that would yes be at a much lower level of uh, of like development in many ways. Like we wouldn't have uh, uh, so many of the bells and whistles that we're enjoying in our leisurely Imperial core right now. Certainly we'd be eating a lot more turnips. Hell, we'd probably be get, have ration cards, but we had ration cards in world war two. And that was awesome because it was a project because it was a sacrifice for something. And that would be instead of being, like a narrowly nationalist project in the face of this destructive internet uh, capitalist civil war, it would be, uh, you know, scarcity and struggle uh, in a positive environment where instead of being every day alienated from every social structure that you're a part of, you were adhered to it. And you're, and you're part of a project of consciously designing human life, consciously exactly. grabbing those, those alien inhuman um, forces that are constantly pushing us around that demonic algorithm yep. that we've talked about before. And our chance for it, our chance for it was there in the, uh, in that period between the war, that 30 year period, uh, the, 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 massive, uh, world crisis that begins in 1914 and ends in 1945. Like if there was, if there was contingency, if there was anything up for grabs, if, if the, uh, working class that had been able to organize it to the extent that it had by 1914 and then dealt with, you know, every uh, crisis that emerged from then. If, if those forces were uh, up to the task of claiming power, that's when they would have done it. Yeah. And you know, there's the, the political dimension that you're talking about. There's the tremendous will of Lenin, of course, as this world historical figure, this sort of hinge around which world history turns uh, in, in 1917, 1918, 1919 or so, there is that aspect to it. Um, and that ultimately is the aspect that takes the forefront because the, the thing that the Bolsheviks were building upon, and of course the reason why they were able to actually successfully grab that power to actually make the October Revolution um, was, of course, a um, highly militant, um, highly organized, uh, and very powerful working class movement that in Russia had been around for a couple decades, uh, but in Europe had been around for 70 years at this point in time. Mm -hmm. The old thesis that basically uh, mass production would, through the process of socializing the economy, right, by making people dependent, by making workers dependent on one another and their various enterprises uh, in order to reproduce the things necessary to reproduce themselves, right, through the process of production, um, that, that school, uh, that 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 school of organization known as the factory would, of course, uh, create a working class capable of uh, not just governing itself, but also governing society. Right. It was the socialization of production that leads to the overcoming of, you know, uh, political capitalism in 
Russia is a backwater in some sense, and I think that people have written very eloquently about this. But it was also, of course, uh, from 1905 onwards, on the forefront of uh, working class self-activity, uh, because what the the wave that the Bolsheviks are riding, of course, is one that was born in St. Petersburg, Moscow, uh, and other cities uh, in the western part of Russia, which was, of course, this very unique form. Uh, maybe the most inspiring form of uh, self-organization I think we've ever seen in world history, which, of course, is the Workers' Council or in Russia, the, the Soviet, right? You have yeah. um, uh, a dual power situation, famously, that arises in 1917. In 1905, on the back of uh, the Russian Empire's defeat against Japan, uh, you have the emergence of this sort of nucleus, this powerful nucleus of working class power. Uh, which was essentially <clears throat> factory and industry councils uh, that were directly democratic with recallable delegates uh, that were really the synthesis of political and economic power. It was truly the overcoming of the sort of bifurcation of bourgeois life where you have politics on the one hand and you have the sort of automatic workings of the economy on the other. The Soviets come in in 1905 and the smart people like Trotsky and Luxembourg realize this, come in <clears throat> and obliterate that distinction between those two and create essentially these organs of class power that um, that were the revolution in a real way, right? It's the, the Bolsheviks, of course, are able to um, rally and inspire people because they saw the power of these Soviets. Um, of course, what happens, you know, is within this civil war, you know, 1917 to 1919, you have these advanced sections, uh, sectors of the working class obliterated yeah. in the Civil War. This advanced working class, you know, 70, 80, 90 percent of them get killed because they are the core of the Red Army as well. Right. You yeah. have this sort of culmination, I feel like, of this building of class power into these unique organs of working class self-activity um, that ultimately are not it's not simply a betrayal. Although, of course, Soviet power, the power of the workers' councils themselves, becomes subordinate eventually to the power of the party, right? But there was this real moment uh, in, in history between, say, 1917 and 1921 uh, where there was this experiment in self-governance um, that really shook and changed the world. There was the culmination of decades of um, theoretical you know, workings out of what working class power will look like. It became material and it became concrete at this moment in time. Uh, and of course, with the dissolution of Soviet power, with the the death uh, and ultimately the liquidation of this sort of um, this new organ of class power, the revolution could only then from then on become what it was, which is, of course, uh, a dictatorship of the party over the class. Right. And I think. I mean, this is sort of this is determined by the the transition uh, in the economy that occurs uh, because these organs you're talking about uh, this this new incredibly powerful social force this technology really that that gives uh, this you know group of people like I said it's a group of people in a room it's an executive committee sitting around eating sausage and deciding whether to overthrow the government. They're able to do that because they can literally press a button and uh, it will tell a bunch of members of, you know, the, the military organization to tell a bunch of uh, machine gunners to be here instead of here. It'll tell a bunch of armed uh, uh, 
armed uh, workers to be here in a way that no one else could do. Kerensky could ask people to do that, but there was no guarantee that they would actually show up. Uh, the, the the bourgeois literally would never couldn't get anybody to do anything. They were the only people who could get anybody to do anything, and it's because these were motivated people because they thought they were working on behalf of uh, something that would benefit them specifically and generally as members of a working class and uh, members like members of a of a nation member members of a human race. Um, but the conditions that created that consciousness were ones in which they were working for capitalists. Ones where they worked in factories that were owned by capitalists, that, that their surplus was taken by capitalists. And so their relationship to politics was in opposition to this force. Uh, but once the Soviets take power and have to carry out this regime of you know, a, a mass military mobilization to defeat white uh, encirclement, all of a sudden, these workers, the ones who are still in factories and aren't out, you know, with guns getting chewed up and destroyed and, and obliterated and taken from the equation, these like mature, uh, uh, actual, you know, these subjects uh, that are uh, predicated by Marx, you know, the, the people who are to emerge from the conditions of, uh, of industrial labor to be self-guided uh, agents of history for the first time, are getting fucking massacred. The people who now work at the factories don't work for capitalists. They work for the government, and the government still demands that they they labor, that still makes decisions for them on what they're going to do, and still, still requisitions the uh, surplus of their labor. And that means that the, the feedback loop uh, between politics and, and labor is broken, because now uh, communism is uh, no longer what you use to fight your regime of exploitation it is the uh, perpetrator of your regime of exploitation like felt you can like you could say it's not exploitation but we're talking about the felt experience of living in a, working in a factory for wages on someone else's timeline and on, with someone else's uh, orders on what to do with your time Folks, uh, this is the end of the extended free preview. Uh, if you want to hear the rest of this conversation, please support our work by becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash theantifada. Uh, we have a bunch of great content on there, access to the Discord servers included and all that. Um, tons of good stuff. So, yeah, uh, the rest of it will be up on patreon.com. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Oh,